Do endurance athletes need to consume carbohydrates during training? Welcome to the Inside Sports Nutrition Podcast, your source for all things sports nutrition related. This show is hosted by myself, Bob Sibahar, and my awesome co-host, Dina Griffin. We are both registered dietitians who are board-certified specialists in sports dietetics with combined professional experience exceeding 40 years. We are here to translate the somewhat complex nutrition and sports science research to real life and give you some awesome interviews with a variety of experts so you can enhance your knowledge to optimize your health, your fitness, your longevity, and your athletic performance. Now, on today's episode 117, Dina and I sit down with a very special guest, Dr. Dan Plews out of New Zealand. Dan is a scientist, a researcher, an athlete, and a coach to many professional endurance athletes in addition to many other things, which you can read about in his bio in the show notes. But today we sit down and we get his perspectives on carbohydrate fueling recommendations for endurance athletes, what his take is on it. Uh, And more importantly, because he's done some research in this area, we kind of get down to the brass tacks of looking at the research and looking at real life recommendations. We also discuss some benefits of fat oxidation and hear about some of his surprising triathlon training and racing details, both with himself and his strategies he uses with his endurance athletes. Now, before we do get to the show, I just want to throw a shout out there to my Eliminating GI Distress in Endurance Athletes self-study course. This is an amazing self-study course. If you are an endurance athlete and you have GI distress, you have to purchase this course, like literally. I will help you rid yourself of GI distress, hopefully forever. All you have to do is go over to my website, energyperformance.com. That's E-N-R-G performance.com. Click on courses and masterclasses and you will find my Eliminating GI Distress in Endurance Athletes course. And now on to the episode. Dina, I am so amazingly excited about our guest today. I can't even tell you, like, you know, when your blood pressure kind of goes up and you get the sweaty palms, that's, that's kind of what I'm doing because Dr. Dan Plews is with us today. He's in, he's out of New Zealand and he is one, I mean, an amazing person, an amazing researcher, an amazing athlete, amazing coach. Like, I don't think there's anything not amazing about Dan. So Dan, welcome to the Inside Sport Nutrition Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the flattering introduction. You you make me blush. (laughs) Well, I was actually trying to, so it worked, right? (laughs) So Dan, in case our listeners are like, Dan, Dr. Who? Give us, I mean, guys and gals, listen, you're going to be just enamored and amazed by by our guest here. But Dan, give us a little setup. Like, um, let's let's put a little cred, like street cred, right, with with this to set this up. So, give us give us a little bit of timeline of your education, like uh, in university, and and maybe maybe even what triggered that interest in what you studied. Yeah, yeah. So I I started um, I started life as a as a young triathlete first and foremost. Um, in the British, I was from. I'm originally from the UK, even though now I live in New Zealand. I'm a New Zealand citizen, but I, you know, I brought. I was brought up in the UK. Um, I was a competitive triathlete as a youngster. I'm national national youth champion, national junior champion. I was in the British system. I went to Loughborough primarily to do sport, really, because that's where the national centre was, and I got a scholarship to Loughborough University. Um, and I, at the same time, I. Did this side hobby that was studying a degree, which was not really my interest. It was, uh, I have to say, I was more interested in just training. And I w- definitely wasn't the best student. 
Um, but after that, I um, after that I finished the degree, and then I got a scholarship to go to Leeds Leeds University, where I was with the British Triathlon Federation, where I was the assistant coach to the high performance program there. So I did my masters, my masters at Leeds, but at the same time getting some um, getting some experience as a coach pretty much so at the time Alistair Brownlee was there as a junior his brother was there so it was early days of um, oh, wow. you know, on to be two-time Olympic champion um, and then from there I moved, went to Singapore and in Singapore I went there originally as a coach um, but then after a year I moved to work for the um, Singapore Sports Institute purely as an exercise physiologist so I kind of moved away from coaching and went straight more down the sports science kind of realm um, and from there when I was there we were doing a we, we, I was teaching labs for Edith Cohen University based out of Perth. And one of the professors there was a professor called Paul Wilson, who remains to be a really good friend of mine. And, you know, he was also a triathlete, um, specialising in the Ironman distance. We got on like a house on fire from day one. It was like, you know, you're meeting your kindred spirit. And um, and then he moved to New Zealand as the head of high-performance sport for exercise in exercise physiology um, for the New Zealand Olympic program. So he said... I would love you to come over and do a PhD under me on a scholarship in New Zealand. So long story short, got the scholarship, moved to New Zealand to start my PhD. PhD was in heart rate variability. And um, at the same time, I about I think it was after about three months of moving there, I got a position working for the um, New Zealand rowing program, the Olympic rowing program. So I was in rowing for eight years. I went to the London and Rio Olympics with them um, as a purely an applied physiologist finishing my PhD. Um, so I did my PhD, finished that, worked in the team. And now, I guess, fast fast tracking, I've remained in exercise physiology to some capacity. Um, I still work for the Women's Kayak Program as an exercise physiologist, where we have, like, we won three Olympic gold medals in the last Olympics, um, current K4 world champion, K2 world mm-hmm. champions. So we're, we're reasonably pretty good for a small country in, in women's kayak. And um, but now one of the main things I do is I still super, I work for AUT University. I still supervise students. So I have um, a new a number of PhD and master's students doing various projects. And I um, and I coach some professional triathletes. So I coach Chelsea Sodaro, who's a 2022 Ironman world champion, Javier Gomez, nine times world champion, and Aaron Royal, who's ranked 16th in the world. And I've just taken on a, a youngster called Fabian Mewson. So um, so, yeah, and that's kind of kind of me really and I'm still keeping on the keeping on, on top of the research thanks to my, my students really that's that's unreal I mean and quick question how long did it take you between all of your degrees you know from start to finish um, what was that span it wasn't that long really considering okay. what it was I mean I guess there was a there was a after finishing my master's I was in new um, Singapore on a four-year break right so I wasn't I finished my master's went straight to Singapore I wasn't doing my PhD at that point so um you know my master's was two years my my um, degree was three years so that's five and then my phd took three and a half so that's eight and a half years with okay four years in between so yeah yeah kind of a typical but yeah but i love the application part of that that's fantastic yeah i mean my phd was 100 percent applied and all my data was in the rowing team so you know i had the privilege of collecting data as part of my job and using that data to publish papers and use it for my phd which was really good that's amazing. Did you take some breaks then from your own triathlon? Because you were early on, it sounds like in youth doing yeah. triathlon. And of course, 
I think most listeners will know about your successes here in the past five, six years, but um, mm-hmm. in between when you were doing more academics and yeah, that, working. That, that's a, gr- a great question. I guess I never really stopped, I get, um, but I think how much focus you have on it um, was different, right? I, I, I always did some kind of swim, bike, run training all the time, always, um, but not, you know, when I was in, in Kona, when I won the, the, broke the course record there in 2018, I was obviously very, very focused and I was doing a lot of training. But, you know, previous years, I was, you know, 10, 15 hours a week, whereas for that, I was 20, 25 hours mm-hmm. a week. So, you know, it just ebbs and flows of of how you, where you, where you focus on things. I mean, certainly when I was in Singapore, I was still training a reasonable amount, but I was doing really the shorter distance races and I was I was doing quite well in Southeast Asia as an athlete. Um, and then when I moved to do my PhD, I didn't really, um, I did my first Ironman in 2013, which is the year I finished my PhD. So I kind of, wow. oh. so, so d- during um, that period of time, I didn't really do much racing as such. I tried to do a little bit, but not not nothing in the Ironman. And then I finished my PhD and then I, I focused on um, an Ironman, did my first Ironman in 2013. I went to Kona for the first time in 2015. And then I really focused for three years because I knew I could do some, I really wanted to win the age group in Kona. I focused for that in um, until from 2015 to 2018, had a good race. And then I actually took a big break again. And then I came back at the end of 2022. And then I did 756 in California at the end of um, 2023. So unreal i mean are you still doing long course so like what's what's going uh, on so i always said that like 2023 in california was going to be my last race so i haven't i haven't done any training in terms of well i'm still keeping active of course but it's a bit more You're keeping with, fit yeah. yeah yeah with strength work and i'm still doing a bit of running and yeah i haven't been back to the pool because that's not really my favorite thing to yeah. do but <laughs> a bit more time in the gym getting stronger I'm trying to build a bit of mass. I've put on 10 kilos. Since, wow. Uh, How's that yeah. going? It's good. Yeah. I mean, it's a very different focus, you know, going from an endurance world where you're almost kind of restricting to yeah. kind of the bulking world where you're eating overly, over, you're probably eating more than you need to. Like, I don't really feel hungry all the time anymore. I'm actually never hungry yeah. um, and forcing food down me all of the time just for this little <laughs> phase of phase whilst I try and get bigger. But it's been great. I mean, I love experiments. I love trying new things. So it's yeah. Um, and, and the main thing is I've I've seen such a difference in strength. Like I was so weak as a tri- as a pure triathlete. I could mm. barely do a chin up. Richly, I could do about two. And this morning I did ten in a row. So yeah. it's a big um, a big difference, you know. Which is, this is not think, Yeah, I think all of us can relate to that, right? I mean, yeah. it, it, you speak such great words with that, and, and all the endurance athletes I work with too. Like you mentioned, strength. And I'm like, oh. No, no, no. I mean, it's changing a little bit nowadays, yeah. but that that yeah. seems to be the mantra. But this is interesting. What you just said about like trying to bulk up and add some strength and add some mass, it's a great transition into the nutrition piece of this, right? So you are so well known. Like you said, you did your your PhD in heart rate variability, HRV training. You did you've done I think quite a bit, at at least you have a lot of exposure um, and and influence in the nutrition world, even though you don't have as many papers published in nutrition versus like HRV, but we want to lean on this nutrition piece of the puzzle because here's what's curious about this. 
I am so, and I'm not going to ask you to answer this question yet because I'm really curious on what you're eating these days, but we're going to pause there for a second. Yep. Let's, let's go back. Let's go back to growing up in the UK, a young triathlete, like take us back to how Dan used to eat growing up. And then through your junior competitive years, how that changed in college, if it did like, and then where you're at, maybe not currently, but maybe up to like breaking the age group record in Ironman, like take, yeah. take us through that, that continuum. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I guess when I was younger, it was all, you know, I, I, I thought we were, my mum obviously was the main cook in the house, right? She was, she was looking after us and, and I always felt that we ate very healthy, which we, we did, but it was just your typical, um, Ansel Keys guidelines, right? Okay. Is, yep. Fat, higher carb, moderate protein and that's the way around and of course you know if i got to the table and my mum made a salad and some salmon and there was no bread on the table i'd be absolutely mortified you know i'm like you know where <laughs> are the carbohydrates you know, you know? so um, so very typical but the real the real eye-opener for me was when i went to university and i kind of left my mum's you know the home and i'm cooking and you know we, we were told by the sports nutritionists that who are looking after us is that you know carbs are the way um cereals are a great snack you can never eat enough cereal you know if you're hungry just chow down a bit of cereal um and always have a sports drink in your hand these were the guidelines that oh, we no. had like and lo and behold i got a little bit what's the right word soft around the soft, edges yeah mm-hmm. you know yeah um, way too soft to and my running didn't go that well funnily enough and uh, and and um and to be honest it just I kind of always struggled with that a little bit is that I just never as a promising junior something whether it's nutrition or whatever it was I never really kind of came through to what I wanted to achieve mm-hmm. um but you know and 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 I and I struggled for a long time I remember like trying various things like you know um taking out gluten taking out wheat which made a massive difference to me you know but I think the thing is, is that I took out the wheat, it made a massive difference, but then you find other foods that don't have wheat in them, but are still high in carbohydrates. That is actually the real culprit. So you're taking, mm-hmm. I took out the wheat, I think, wow, this is really making a difference. Then you suddenly start adding in rice crackers and chocolate coated rice crackers. And mm-hmm. and then you go, oh, it's not working anymore. And that, like, you know, looking back, I'm like, now I know why I know what the reason was. Um, so, so, you know, and then, you know, we, and I remember even when I moved to New Zealand, I was still following that kind of type of diet you know mm. I often have subway and eat a muffin no worries and whatever it might be um but it was really in 2012 which was the the turning point for me because I remember specifically trying to make the transition when I was at the Olympics so I was at the Olympics and and I thought you know and I was listening to like some of the stuff that Tim Notes was saying and I was talking to my good friend Professor Paul Lawson on the matter because we were also delving into that area and um you know we started with paleo that area then we kind of went lower and lower carb tried ketogenic and and um and basically it took a while to find what was right you know the kind of the right balance of that whole spectrum of what's what is the right amount of macronutrient manipulation so to speak um but yeah it basically it the whole lower carb space carbohydrate periodization it changed me completely as an athlete. I went from um, suddenly I used to be a four ten seventy point three, and then suddenly I was going under four hours. You know, for me, wow. it was it was everything, and um, and I kind of followed that. And and I think even from two thousand twelve to two thousand eighteen, by the time I got to two thousand eighteen, I'd really 
honed the experience and knew what to do. And even in 2015, when I went to Conan, I was still, I was kind of dabbling in that way, but I wasn't really fully knowing what to do, so to speak, or fully immersed on it. So, um, so yeah, and, and I haven't really looked back since, you know, I've, I kind of, that's the, that is the trend I've been, I've been on a lower carb diet since 2012, really. So not ketogenic per se, because I've heard you on a few other podcasts. Yeah. Talking lower carbohydrate. Yeah. yeah not yeah. like a chronic ketogenic yeah, not, or any. Yeah. Yeah. So so specifically not ketogenic, because mm-hmm. I really don't think that is the way forward for endurance athletes. I think my, my, my feeling is um, you can get, you can generally, you can get into ketosis just for exercise induced ketosis anyway, if, if that's your thing, which is, which is doing a lot of the same, the same, as long as you can produce ketones, you're okay. You know, if you can, if you can ramp up um, your lipids and fat oxidation and pump, pump up the triglycerides in the blood um, and you will produce ketones at the end of a ride, you know? So, um, but I think it has to be a little bit more cyclical because I don't really think as humans, we're designed to be in chronic ketosis anyway. And if you're an endurance athlete, who's on a lower carb diet and you're specific with when and what you eat with different, um, you know, during exercise, you will naturally be in a cyclical ketogenic diet. So, um, and that's kind of the approach that I would recommend and the one that I take myself. Well, could you give us a feel then for what your daily nutrition looks like? I mean, even currently with maybe some strength focus that you've got, how do you periodize nutrition maybe from when you were focused on triathlon more full-time? So, I mean, I can talk I can talk you through like a typical day. I mean, I would do most of my training first thing in the morning. Um, and I would never, I would never really train fasted, but I would always have um, like a coffee with some, you know, with some cream and sometimes some MCT and collagen in there. And then an, an S-Fuels bar. So I work with a company called S-Fuels. Probably, you've mm-hmm. probably heard of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have like a, a bar that's, mostly fat a little bit of protein zero carbohydrates pretty much so that's that was literally my breakfast before i'd have every single session and then i'd do my workout i would i would have generally the s fuels train product which is a an mct based um drink um to get calories in at least and sometimes if it was high intensity enough i would also switch to some carbohydrates later but (laughs) it would be you know after an hour after an hour and a half i might start putting in like 20 30 grams um per hour something you know it depends how hard how hard it is if it was just pure endurance i would i would do the whole thing on just train for example and then after that session depends if, if, if that's the last session of the day then i would generally take in a little bit of a little bit of more carbohydrate so i would generally have that with a smoothie first so i might have like like i have the s fuels revival and i might put some blueberries and banana in there i'd have that and then I would have a lunch as well that would also contain some carbohydrates. Um, and then, you know, and then if I'm training again, I'd do the training. And then that evening, I wouldn't generally have carbohydrates in that evening. It would be maybe a little bit. You generally get some natural ones. I, I always, I was always a big fan of the kind of those, those foods that aren't typically thought of as carbohydrate vegetables, but they actually do contain a reasonable amount. So things like pumpkin, butternut, um, carrots things like this we, I, I would eat a lot of those in my and beetroot for example i have those in my j- diet as my carbohydrate sources in the evening um 
yeah and that would that would pretty much be a general a general day and it would and it could be anywhere by the end of the day from 100 to 200 grams and that was kind of mm. where i would where i would sit but i was never to it has to be 130 it's always somewhere between 100 and um and 200 grams but the but the, the other thing the protein was always reasonably high by by the end of the day like close to 200 grams per day and then just going off that since you're throwing out those numbers dan how about fat grams per day well, I guess the rest was made up of fat because it was, yeah. uh, you know, it was generally it would be 4,000 calories uh, okay. total per day between, gotcha. between 3,000 and 4,000-ish. So there's, yeah. you know, there's quite a lot of fat in there. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of things, hopefully our listeners, they're probably, you know, pushing pause and then rewinding a little bit because what I heard you say, and it's perfect. I mean, it's just, it just screams, you know, nutrition periodization, which is great and front loading and putting carbohydrates where they're necessary. But I think some listeners are going to be like, wait a second, he trained on, on coffee and maybe cream and MCT and like in maybe an S fuels, you know, bar and that that's it. And, and then they, then they're listening. They're like, wait, he only consumed 20 to 30 grams of carbs per hour in a session. So right now, of course, with our high carb listeners, or if they haven't, you know, heard of the metabolic efficiency training concept, or even nutrition periodization, you're blowing their mind. But I will uh, justify this listeners that yeah, Dan is is not just, you know, mincing these words like this is this is true. And, you know, I do want to ask you this too, Dan, have you done some substrate oxidation, some metabolic efficiency testing on yourself? Yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> yeah. So my maximum fat oxidation is 1.4 to 1.6 grams per minute. Okay. Yep. And so, did that change? Like, did in the early days, did you did you do the testing and kind of see how your Yeah, you, well, I think I did it a little bit too. Like I look back at some old data in Singapore and it was 0. 0.7. Okay. You know? okay. But, um, okay. but the thing is it's I don't I knowing what I know now about how tightly you have to control your pre-exercise feeding, you can't really rely on that data too much. Because if I had Child a load right, of carbs just right. before mm-hmm. it, then the numbers are totally off. It's only mm-hmm. really relevant if you're quite controlled in your pre-exercise mm-hmm. um, oh, diet. Right. Which is the thing why I always tell people, they're like, you know, everyone says, well, but carbs are a super fuel. And I'm like, well, if carbs are really a super fuel, why is it the first thing you burn, whatever happens? So if you mm-hmm. start exercising, you've just had a load of carbohydrates, that will be the first thing you burn. And if it really is a super fuel, why doesn't your body just preserve it and do something else with it and burn the yes. fat? Yes. It just wants to get rid of it. So yeah. I always find that quite funny when people say, but carbs are a super fuel. Mm, yeah. Really? I think your body's quite smart. <laughs> okay. Rabbit hole number one. I don't know if we've done this yet, but rabbit hole number one. What what do you say to those naysayers? They're like, no, Dan, I'm sorry. Carbohydrates are a super fuel. Like, have you had those discussions? And I'm not talking like with researcher to researcher, but maybe with an athlete or fitness enthusiast. And you're like, hey, actually, just like you were telling us, like, what are what is your response when someone's shaking their head like, no, what you're saying is not true? How do you respond to that? Well, I think um how do I respond to that? It's, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good question, but I think like we we just we're just a little bit entrenched in in the dogma. And if you really understand how carbohydrate metabolism 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 works, specifically during exercise, my response is always, well, you do realize that I, I will often I say, well, what do you think? Why do you take carbohydrate during exercise? And they'll say, because I'm preserving my muscle glycogen. And then my response is, you do realize that that's not what's happening at all. And if you look at any research. That muscle that carbohydrate taken in during exercise, no matter how much it is, glycogen depletion remains the same. The only thing you're doing 
is preserving liver and blood glucose levels. And then, and, and immediately from that, it makes them second guess because when they can't really, you know, they don't really, then it changes the, their thoughts of why carbohydrates are important, right? And mm-hmm. as long as you, as long as you are starting with reasonable glycogen levels, um, you just need to take enough carbohydrates to maintain blood glucose. That's what you really need to do. You don't need to be going for 140, 120 grams. Um, so, and it is possible. And and also the other thing you see is that within the literature, it's almost a net difference in reductions in fat oxidation to the exogenous burn. So what I mean by that is that the more carbohydrates you put in, the lower your fat oxidation, the more your exogenous and sometimes endogenous burn of carbohydrates. So it goes to say that your body's just always equal out. So how is it a super fuel when your body will just be like, well, I've taken in this much carbohydrates, I'm just going to reduce my fat metabolism and burn off that carbohydrates. Well, you're taking less carbohydrate, you 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 keep your fat metabolism higher, and then you don't burn as much carbohydrates. And, and it's very clear if you look at all the literature of different amounts of carbohydrates and fat, fat oxidation, exogenous carbohydrate oxidation so the that's the carbohydrate that you've just eaten an endogenous carbohydrate oxidation which is the the burning of the carb the carbohydrate that you have in your muscles or um, inside you um and then yeah and then it's hard to it's hard to justify it in in my opinion and and today like if you even look at the performance data there's from 20 to 90 grams of performance and this is and this is where we are the, the holes in the literature are really clear in that we we just kind of got onto this 90 grams of carbs, fructose, glucose. We can burn it at 90 grams, but we jump into this mechanistic approach where all we look at is the mechanism. So we're burning 90, it must be better. But if you actually look at the performance data, it doesn't, it's not really showing that. In fact, from 20 to 90 grams, it's actually quite stagnant. It's quite, it's very much the same, actually. Yeah. There's a re- there was a paper that was produced by the um, by the group that a Gatorade group I think it was Smith et al. and they they, they went from 20 30 40 50 60 70 you know, all the way up to 120 and what they showed was 73 three grams seems to be the best but if you look at the line from 20 to not to 73 it was actually quite flat and the only real difference that that 73 grams was better was because um, it seems to be a less variable individual response. So the standard deviation amongst the, that group was a little bit less. And because a little bit less, of course, that's therefore more statistically significant. But if you mm-hmm. look at the 20 gram group, there was actually a lot of people who went even better on the 20 grams as well. So it's all about the individualization, but I don't think we can all say that more is better, which seems to be the way that we uh, we believe. And um, as long as you have enough carbohydrates on board to start you're generally you're generally pretty sweet and i know i've been rambling but one more thing to say on that my other my other feeling is is that i think once you become a high fat burner generally in the day and this isn't proven this is kind of my speculation so i'm I'm allowed to speculate a bit on the podcast right (laughs) of course Um, um is that like if you're a high fat burner the carbohydrates that you take in you will store if you're a high fat, if you're a high carb burner, you eat carbohydrates, you just burn them. So you probably don't have to eat as much carbohydrates as a high fat burning individual to end it with the same net muscle glycogen load or liver glycogen load. Um, and that's another another thing. The more carbohydrates that you eat, the more you're probably going to have to have them in your diet to maintain the same kind of 
function. So Okay, this is interesting because I have this discussion with quite a few individuals and colleagues because and I know you know about metabolic efficiency training, basically, you know, using your nutrition to teach your body to utilize or oxidize more of your fat stores, right? And the argument always one of them that I get, and it's right down the line of what you're saying is, well, but you're not eating enough carbs. So you're not going to store as many carbs. So you're not going to be able to train or race. And I'm like, no, 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 that's that's not how it works. So I'm glad you're, you know you just kind of brought some light to that because I do think people still believe that. Right. And and that's, yeah, yeah it goes back to a little yeah. carbo loading before a race. Right? Yeah, exactly. And the Jeff Folek faster study, you know, that, that was a prime example of where they, you know, they, they quite nicely showed that muscle glycogen was the same between at the start of exercise between the low glycogen group and the high glycogen group. And even if, um, and that's what I said before, if you have, if you have a high carb and a low carb and you both go and do two hours of exercise, like, the you'll probably end up with the same net glyco muscle glycogen depletion at, at the end anyway because um because all that's happening when you're taking in the carbs you're just going to burn that extra exogenous carbs um you'll probably be low in the calories at the end because you haven't taken in the calories which you do have to consider that you i think the, the main the main um downfall most people can can have when it comes to following a lower carb approach is um you know a negative energy balance because mm. it often comes with I have found that a lot of athletes can often come with a bit of a fat phobia. So they don't mm -hmm. eat enough fat and then they don't eat enough calories. And they do a lot of fasted workouts, which I don't think is necessarily the best. I think having like, that's why S-Fuel's trained so good because we can, you know, it's giving you some calories during during exercise. And often they're also, um, they get too obsessed with ketosis and um, and then they restrict proteins. And in my experience, when it comes, if you keep chasing ketones, you will, especially if you're measuring it, measuring it through BHB, so beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood, it, it will always come down over time and it gets harder and harder to get it elevated. So you take more and more drastic steps and you eat less and less and you fast more and more. And then, of course, that's also problematic. I was just thinking, Dan, uh, when you were talking about uh, substrate oxidation testing and kind of monitoring that just and also your change from when you were in Singapore is thinking of the CGM as well and using, because that's, you know, obviously a hot device to be used by athletes. Um, I was curious your experimentation with the CGM and if you use that much to guide your nutrition even further for training and or just your daily nutrition. Yeah, I've used a, I've used a CGM quite, quite a lot. Um, I, I, presently, I still struggle with the reliability of the numbers during exercise mm. um yeah. i think the research would suggest that is the case as well from what i've seen i think i've seen a few papers that suggest that it's not you know it's a little bit off during exercise but i think like from what i talked about like blood glucose regulation during exercise is the the ultimate thing that you theoretically want to want to maintain right and so particularly if um if you're if if you're doing like endurance exercise, Ironman, whatever it is, taking in carbohydrates to maintain a stable blood glucose is the way you want to go. And of course, the one the one thing that really maintains blood glucose stable is having a higher fat oxidation. And that's one thing that I've seen is that if you have a high fat oxidation, your um, your liver glycogen depletion is generally slower, and your liver is the main thing that's titrating and controlling your blood glucose. So. That is, it's really good to know if you if you are ramping up your fat oxidation by how stable you can keep your blood glucose over um, over a given 
very fixed power output or running pace. But it, I mean, the, the devil is in the detail. You have to be very controlled in the way you do it as well. Right. Right. Yeah. So. I did go down the rabbit hole and I want to, I kind of think we're out of it, but I want to come back because I don't think we got to the, how is Dan eating now in this quote unquote bulk phase, right? So you're trying to add strength. So have you changed your daily nutrition to affect yeah. that? Yeah, I, I did, but then I went back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's, really, it's a funny story because I, I actually went down the higher carb, lower fat because I was oh. to, to try and get to try it, but to be honest, I just couldn't do it. I didn't like it. I felt bloated. I felt more tired. Mm. Um, so now mm. I've, so now I've, um, I, I, I found it very. The reason I went down there to start was because I was having my protein very high. So and up to three hundred grams a day at times. Um, so and as you know, like protein is very satiating. So yeah, and fat's very satiating. So the problem I was having is that if you try and hit three thousand five hundred calories and your protein's that high. It's really, and carbs are such an unfilling food and easy to eat. I was finding myself having to go down the um, more of a higher carb route just to get the calories up because my proteins were so high. Otherwise, I was just too full. So if you try and keep that low and you fill up the rest with fat, you you can't do it. You are way wow. too full. Yeah, um, but sure. now I've I've kind of um, I've kind of brought the cars back, taken the fat up a little bit more. I got a little bit of help from Mickey actually, who we talked about before. Yeah, Mickey and so she she kind of said, "Oh, why don't you try this?" and guided me a little bit with some bit of macronutrient manipulation. So I mean, it's definitely higher than what I I was used to. So it's more chronically up towards the two hundred grams per day. Um, but uh, yeah, the, but you're the, not the, feeling any of those symptoms, those bloated feelings. The, no, yeah. not as much. No. Okay. And, and I, and it's really funny that there's this idea that you need carbohydrates to lift weights. And I'm, I'm not sure. Oh, do I'm not, tell, do tell. I'm not sure where that comes from, but I've been told by a lot of bodybuilders that they're the primary fuel for lifting weights. But I'm struggling with the physiology of that because I'm pretty <laughs> sure that you, if you have it in your muscles, you could just probably look at a weight and raise your blood glucose. And then that would be, um, that would be enough, right? So it's not right. like it's a massively glycogen depleting exercise. So if you, if you lift at a gym or a fitness center, like, do you have those conversations in between sets or <laughs> I, I try, I try and avoid public gyms as much as I can. <laughs> Understandable. They're probably yeah, like, Hey, yeah, there's I, that I, guy I, again. Yeah. I'm not, I'm just not a fan of public gyms, but I have, unfortunately I have a good setup in my garage. So I do most yeah. of it. Okay. That. Oh, nice. Well, you know, Dan, one thing I wanted to loop back in because, and just to kind of go back a few steps, because um, you mentioned that that study that looked at, you know, 20 to 90 grams of carbohydrate consumption during exercise. And yeah, you said the sweet- 20, 20 to 120 grams, yeah. To 120 grams. And I just want to add on that a little bit and then kind of transition into my next topic with you. But I think also, you know, I, I personally work with a lot of athletes, endurance athletes who have GI distress, right? So I think- it, I, I don't I don't think we can discount that because you know latest research says between 30 and 90 percent of endurance athletes at some point will experience GI distress really quickly before I segue into the next section have you you know in working with the athletes that you've worked with have they presented with GI distress symptoms have you had to factor that into their nutrition plans a lot yeah a lot and this is the beauty of so you know I've written a few blogs on like training the gut right yeah and it's yeah another, it's another bit of a bugbear of mine is that if you look at the research behind training the gut 
there's very, very little. I think there's one paper that's been published that showed that it increases your carbohydrate oxidation. Right, right. There has been research to show that, you know, it potentially, potentially, <laughs> sorry about that. No worries. <laughs> love it. Love it. I love the guest appearance from the oh, daughter. Oh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. She bought me a flower. How's that? Aww, oh, that's a perfect that's inter- the sweethearts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just don't eat the flower. <laughs> yeah, <same. laughs> Who's Amazing. controlling that one? There you go. That's, that's some love for you. And she just Aww. brought me a flower in the garden. That's amazing. Um, sorry, where were we? Where, what was I talking about? Uh, carbohydrates. Oh, training the So yeah, and it, there is some reason, there is some evidence to suggest that it improves um, tolerance, right? Um, to but it's not it's not doing anything. And I think we 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 kind of get stuck in this idea that keeps being pushed forward by sports nutrition is that. Tolerance means performance. So mm. higher tolerance, we are therefore going to be faster, which is not the case at all. But the other side of the coin, which I, I don't understand why we'd want to train the gut, with all when we could just train the other side and increase our fat oxidation and reduce the carbohydrate intake that is required to take. So, and this this will blow your your listeners' minds is that when I was here, for example, I took fifty grams per hour on the bike, and then. During the marathon, where I ran a 248 for a 42.7 kilometer run, so it was a bit long, 248 mm-hmm. marathon, after 180k cycling, I took one gel. What? Yeah. So one. How many, one, how many carbs? 20 to 25 grams? It's like, it was, a, it was a, I think it, I don't know, I think it was like a 25 gram gel. Yeah. Amazing. So, and you know, and you, and you just, you, you don't necessarily need it. I also took um, a, you know, whatever was at the A station I was drinking, but, so it probably it wasn't just 25 grams for the whole race i was taking a bit of coke a bit of gatorade as i ran through but but it was like for the fluids and stuff but it's still a lot less than what people think is is possible you know and more on that my last 10k was my fastest 10k so Mm. i ran 39.05 for my last 10k unreal yeah it shows like you know that term metabolic flexibility yes now you how you can do that but with no obviously no gut distress because my carbohydrate intake didn't have to be that high you so, were not between the 60 to 90 or even 120 grams an hour right which no, is being I mean, reported from some some research groups and some yeah, schools and thought yeah exactly so i mean if you if you added up for the whole eight hours it's probably adds up to about 20 grams an hour or something like that you know if you oh this- my god can you just say that again because you crossed the line in what what was your time again? Seven. Uh, Seven fifty-six. Seven hours. Seven fifty-six, nice. yeah. and you consumed probably around that 20, 25 grams of carbohydrate per hour. And of course, yeah. we have to take the swim out of it and all that stuff. But that, again, that probably blows some of our listeners' minds, unless they've been following us for quite a while. Then they're like, "Oh yeah, that's that sounds right." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it would be about that. I have to do the exact math, but yeah, yeah most of that. You know, four hours twenty on the bike, three hours, two, uh, you know, 40, yeah, forty. Three minutes in the swim and yeah. Right. So how do you, okay, here comes the segue because you're a phenomenal coach to amazing athletes. What is your approach? Like, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, you know, I'm, I'm Chelsea and I'm like, Hey, Dr. Plews, I would love for you to coach me. And you're like, okay, you've got to meet these criteria or here's where we're going. Like, how do you, and you don't have to share that, but how do you guide these amazing athletes who we can only just, you know, just, you know, kind of put on the pedestal with their nutrition, like are a lot of them starting like super high carb, low fat, low protein, or are they coming in already somewhat fat adapted, metabolically efficient? 
Um, it depends, really. I mean, the first thing I do is I'll test them and you know get a lay of the land. Okay. Take a look under the hood and see what needs needs to be done. Like you know, I started working with um, an athlete called Aaron Royal, and his fat oxidation was like already over one. You know, it was like one point mm-hmm. two, one point three. So I never really had to touch it at all. But it also has to come with us. Uh, my 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 philosophy is I will never push a low carb diet on any athlete that I coach unless they specifically ask for it because I will always try different approaches to improve their carbohydrate oxidation before chronically going to um to a lower carb diet for example so with Chelsea she's you know she's moderate carbs she's not super high Uh, Mickey Willidan also helps Chelsea as well so you know we're very much aligned but um you know we do do some very specific sessions with you know glycogen depletion before pushing fat oxidation during um, you know, we're not crushing loads of carbohydrates during every single session. So, um, you know, and she and she takes very moderate, modest amounts of carbohydrates around 60 grams an hour during racing, you know. So mm. I think another thing with the gut discomfort is the more you can get below 60 and you can avoid fructose, it seems to be better exactly. for most people. Um, so, you know, that's the approach that we take with her. But her, you know, she's also, you also have to think about there's so much more to it than, than just substrate use because with someone like Chelsea, she's very light. So she's, you know, in, in the 50 to 60 kilo range. She's also highly economical. So her total calorie burn is quite low. So mm. she can, you know, get away with having a lower carbage. And, and her substrate use is is pretty good. So with her, it's it's reasonable. But if you got another athlete who was um, you know, a big, big athlete, they're pushing like 300 30 watts for the course of an Ironman um, and they had moderate, not very good substrate use, they they might have to go towards 90 grams per hour. They might right. just have to. Um, and then with that athlete, you might try and shift their their fat metabolism as well. So, um, yeah, it's it's just, I think there's not, there's not one approach that fits all. You have to look at the individual and their willingness to do it because my experience, if you, if you, um, if they're not 100% bought into the diet and want to do it themselves, it will never work because you can't. You just they just do it in a half, halfway, and and it just it's just uh, it, it's just fought with problems. The um the one pro athlete he, he retired last year. He he won Ironman Switzerland, um and then he won it for the fourth time and then and then he retired. But Jan van Berkel, you know, he was very low carb, you know, mm. very very much a student, and it you know and he um, he went to be one of the best runners in um in Ironman you know I ran um I think his best was he ran a 236 in zero in the in Switzerland Ironman and won it which is not a fast course at all um but again you know he's same approach he takes you know carbohydrates on the bike doesn't take much on the run and he um and he, we took his fat metabolism from 0.7 to 1.3 mm. um, wow and, you know, and, and um makes a big difference yeah, that's huge change. I, I think I wanted to ask you, Dan, before we move on to a couple other questions, when you're mentioning Chelsea and thinking of other female athletes, whether they're high performing or or maybe not professional, but just maybe elite level or even recreational, just your perception or from your research and you know, gleaning the other research that exists, like your take on the concerns around fueling the female athlete differently or concerns around low carb availability. And that, I mean, I'm I'm sure that could be a whole other hour long discussion, but I didn't know if you wanted to comment a little bit more on that. Oh, yeah, I'm more than happy to comment. I mean, 
the research isn't there to suggest that i think i don't think there's any research that suggests that that is the case and and my approach is um you treat athletes as individuals regardless of whether they're male or female and um you can't just say that because you're because you're female you're this way because you're male you're this way i think the the within variation um of females and the within variation of males you can have a male and a female who are very close who in in terms of how they respond to things i think but you then you could have uh, two males who are totally poles apart in how they respond to things it's not a male or female thing it's an individual thing and there's no suggestion that hormones affects performance affects um affects diet or affects all of these things i mean it's just um it is just individual and that's what you have to look at it on an individual response and that's always the the approach i, I would take regardless perfect yeah i i love that response which kind of leads me into my you know, a lot of times recreational athletes look at the elites and they're like, wow, number one, number two, they're like, you know, what they do doesn't apply to me because they're a little different. Right. So what do we know about elite athletes and recreational athletes in terms, it, it could be anything regarding substrate oxidation, genetics, uh, you know, different diets, nutrition plans, whatever, like what, what is your take on, okay, elite athlete versus rec athletes and nu- daily nutrition planning? Yeah. So I think when it could, I mean, what we're talking about is substrate oxidation, fat, carbohydrate. Um, so what we know, the most potent stimulant for upregulating and improving your fat oxidation is exercise. And specifically, what seems to be more than that is glycogen depleted exercise. So my view is that elite athletes probably need to worry about it a little less than recreational athletes. Um, because the hours of training are so high generally that there's always there's that potent stimulus for the change and um and there's also likely some more glycogen depletion but if you're if you want to regulate your fat oxidation and you're wanting to do an ironman and you're in the 10 to 15 hours of training per week you will definitely need to think about it a little bit more than i think it becomes more important for the for the recreational athletes not less important the nutrition part of it yeah, the nutrition part of it. Yeah. Just because they have less volume of training. Exactly. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I love that. And I think, um, and I think, I mean, I mean, just respectfully, when you, we were actually wrote a, um, we wrote a, a paper that was, um, that was published. It was, we looked at all the things that affect substrate oxidation during exercise. And um, what we showed was that glycogen depletion was one of the main drivers. So how you started that exercise was one of the main drivers. Um, and habitual fat in the diet. So the more fat you generally had in the diet anyway, the more upregulated your fat oxidation seemed to be. But other things didn't really have m- that much of an effect. Of course, fitness level generally has an effect. The higher the VO2 max, the higher the the um, the fat oxi- the fat oxidation. But that's just because you're doing a little bit more work generally. Um, mm-hmm. But things like you know taking carbohydrates during exercise didn't really change it very much. Um, yeah, and yeah, so that was published in Sports Med with my, my PhD student Jeff Rothschild was the main author of that. So, fantastic! All right, let's let's get a little more personal uh, with with Dan because you mentioned this earlier, and it's just it's I'm I'm a little curious with S fuels, right? We've known about S fuels. Um, obviously, you do some work with them. That is, it, and I'm putting words in your mouth, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But is that your main sport nutrition product that you usually lean on for your energy needs surrounding mm-hmm. exercise and activity? 
Yeah, it's the only one I lean on, really. <laughs> okay, and it's yeah. and it's because of what you've already said. And listeners, if you've been really keeping up with this, it's because the products that they provide are not super high carbohydrate. They're they're different products from what I know of them, right? For different purposes, and and I believe it's uh, right fuel, right time is their yeah. is their mantra, right? So really looking at when do we need certain nutrients, right? And is that like the whole uh, onus of S fuels? Exactly. So it's not it's not a low carb brand. You know, we have we have products that are you know they've got twenty two grams per serve of carbohydrates. So mm-hmm. We don't have any fructose in there. It's a pure, it's a highly mm-hmm. branched chain maltodextrin. Um, but then we've got other products that will support lower intensity efforts. So you know, if if you're going out on a long level two, like a two hour level two bike ride, for example, you would just have the train, which is more of a you know it's an MCT based f- fuel source with um, with some collagen in. And um, whereas and then we've also got a caffeine, the caffeine products as well that you might have mm. in there as a, as a bit of a primer. But then if you've got, um, if you're doing some high intensity efforts, we've got our race plus, which is a maltodextrin. They've got one that's 15 grams, one that's 22 grams per serve. So you might, you know, want to take that during the, during your exercise as well. So if, 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 for example, I was doing, um, I might be doing a session that's like, let's give it another like 10 by four minutes at my threshold power with two minutes recovery. I'll probably start off with just a bottle of the caffeine prime at the start. Um, and then I'd have the race plus the carbohydrates that I might start taking, you know, after rep five and start, you know, taking in if, if I need it. So it's, um, yeah, it's about, it's about the, that approach. And it's not necessarily just because I'm going out on a, on a five hour ride, I'm taking 60 grams per hour of carbohydrates. You know, I've got other choices that are going to help mm. that. Um, I mean, my relationship with Estuil started in 2016, um, you know, when I was kind of already going down this path. And the real problem was there was just nothing to eat for endurance ac- mm. endurance activity for athletes who wanted to take a right fuel, right time approach. Unless you wanted to take some products with, that are just caked with fructose and glucose, um, there was nothing to eat. So you either ate that, you had water, or you didn't eat anything. So, um, and this was the kind of, the, this is how we, we, um, we crossed paths. So it sounds like they're they're like me perhaps I I think but some of your research and obviously your knowledge is kind of guiding some of their principles with products and philosophies also right yeah exactly and and I think um, especially with the right fuel right time approach I think it it's just something that everyone needs to get get hold of as particularly if you're uh, if you're doing this from a health perspective right right so important. Okay, Dan, have we, you know, as we're kind of getting ready to wrap up, anything that you want to highlight that you're like, listen, we didn't talk about that. And it's pretty important. Like, I want to mention that anything that we left out that you really want to bring up? Um, I don't think so. We, okay. a lot of, uh, we a lot did, of right? Yeah. yeah, we we could we could basically have like a podcast book with you and it'd probably be about 362 chapters, right? Because you're just <laughs> such a, you're, you're such a great person to talk to and a wealth Good of knowledge. Good on but, reading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I didn't say how long the chapters would be, but they would probably be pretty long, right? Um, okay, so let's let's go ahead. We'll wrap this up. We're going to move into our high five questions. And listeners, just so you know, everything that we're referencing from the studies, uh, uh, the S fuels, everything that we're we're mentioning, and, and Dan has mentioned, we're going to put in our show notes. You can find it, and we are going to put links down to your Endure IQ business. Uh, everything that so more listeners can, you know obviously maybe learn more about you, what you've been doing, what you're up to and kind of where you're going. Cause it's, I mean, you're, you're, you're just, I've said this, I don't know what, like 12 million times. You're just such an amazing person, but 
Hopefully I made you blush one more time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. We're going to go right into our high five questions. So these are just, you know, whatever, whatever you, it's just quick, easy listeners, you know, we haven't prepped them for any of these. So I'm going to start out with question number one, ocean or lake swim for a triathlon. Like lake. Okay. All right. Nothing, yeah. not so many things to eat you in a lake. Yeah. I oh, totally agree with that point. one. Yeah, yeah. I'm right there with you. That's totally true. Yeah. Okay. Aside from training and the research you do, teaching, you know, all the other stuff, what is a hobby that maybe not many people know that you participate in? I play the guitar. Oh, Oh, no kidding. Dina also plays the guitar. So you guys could could really, I don't, (laughs) I want to, I want to learn, but Dina won't teach me. So I don't know. (laughs) And I also, um, I also like drawing Marvel figures pictures oh, wow. i used do to do it really and now i i still do it but I, I used to paint them and i have what? actually in my gym i have a massive hulk that i painted when i was younger underneath my squat rack but um ah. but now i still i still do it but like with just inking and you know, for my kids you know yeah. on request amazing that is pretty cool i'd like to see some of those okay question number three do you have like a set morning routine if so what is it um it, it varies i mean I mean, to be honest with you, it depends on what my children are doing. Um, mm-hmm. Generally, it's some kind of carnage of them causing trouble some, <laughs> uh, or picking flowers. But when, if I if I um, if I have the time, the first what I've been doing, what I did all of January was the first thing I did every morning was I went in the ice bath, like without oh. hesitation. So oh. I have an ice bath that's down um, that's down there. So my routine was I would I would get up, I would get straight into the ice bath before I did anything, um, two, two to three minutes in the ice bath. And then I would get out and I'd stand on the grass in the sun for three minutes. And then I would come inside and I'd have my, um, my supplements and whatever it would be. And then coffee and, a, and start and start the day. But, but I was being pretty consistent with that. I was just generally getting my, my son though can hear me cracking the ice on the ice bath. And as soon as he hears that, he's like, straight down and he wants to <laughs> give him some ice and <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, question number four, you have traveled a lot of the world. So I was curious, or we were curious, what's the most bizarre food you've ever eaten? Most bizarre food. I've had a ghost brain. Oh, yeah, should we ask what that tastes like? <laughs> yeah, it was, in, it was in when I was in Saudi Arabia, actually. Um, and oh, also, wow. it didn't taste of much. Very soft, really? very huh. pretty tasteless. Yeah. Um, that was one of the most bizarre. I mean, I've had a bit of raw liver in my time, and that's quite not doesn't taste that good. But yeah. I do it. Yeah. Anyway. yeah, I've heard you talk about that yeah. before. It's quite it's quite hilarious, actually. Yeah, just because just, <laughs> just, just because I think it's good for me, and I don't really like the um, I don't really like the taste anyway. So I just merge eat it raw. So. Yeah, <laughs> so, let's get it over. The, the goat's brain gets me, Dan, because all I can think about is anatomy lab. And yeah. when you, I just, I don't know if I could do it because you just, you just know so much about that complex, right? Because you've studied it and wow, that's. Ghost, ghost brain is apparently very high in theanine that's um, and good for sleep. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So our listeners are now going to try to find goat's brain if they have problems sleeping. <laughs> But fortunately, you can get most of it in a capsule. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. In this day yeah. and age, you can get most of that. That's stuff. right. That's true. That's right. You don't have to worry about the taste. Yeah. Okay. Last but not least, the question that we love to ask at the very end is 
you're going to be restricted with only one piece of advice to give to our listeners, to athletes. What is that only one piece of advice? And it can be anything. Focus on the process. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. I always try to guess what the listener will, will or what the, what our guests will say. That's, that's good. That's I like really that. Good. Yeah. I mean, that speaks volumes. Yeah. 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 I think All it's right. uh, what I want. <laughs> Yeah, love that. And that's probably what you've done, especially moving up to, you know, kind of preparing for your, you know, setting the Ironman world record champion for age group. I mean, just that was probably part of the process, right? So I love that. Yeah. 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 I know. Yeah. I know what I say, like, if you focus on the process, everything else will take care of itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Totally believe in that. All right. Yeah. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Dr. Dan Plews, we are just enamored and so privileged and honored that you shared some time with us today. We would be privileged to have you back in the near future. Uh, and really just, you know, kudos to you for everything that you've contributed to our sport nutrition research practical. We we love it. We love following you. We'll put all those links in our show notes so listeners can love you just as much as us. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yes. Thank Thanks you. For having me. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank all you right, so listeners, much. We'll catch you on our next episode. Thanks for listening. Well, we hope you enjoyed episode 117, where Dina and I sat down and chatted with Dr. Dan Plews and chatted about carbohydrate needs with endurance athletes. Stay tuned for next week's episode when we talk to Jane Reagan, who is a registered dietitian who specializes in eating disorders. And we will be talking about eating disorders for young athletes and strategies that parents can use to help their young athletes. If you do have a sport nutrition-related question, shoot us an email, hello at insidesportsnutrition.com, and we would love to answer that on a future Ask Us Anything episode. We would love your support in helping us promote our podcast, so if you can pass along our podcast information to all of your friends and family and training partners, go to your podcast platform of choice, give us a five-star rating, give us a review. It just really helps us grow and share our content with other listeners around the world. Also, you can head on over to our website, insidesportsnutrition.com. Find all of our show notes, all of our past episodes. You can find our deals that we have with certain companies. So just a little bit more support um, from us to you. Now, if you would like more information about what Dina and I do in our respective businesses, head on over to nutritionmechanic.com for what Dina is up to and head on over to energyperformance.com. That's E-N-R-G performance.com to see all of the services that I offer. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and the guest involved and do not represent a replacement for medical consultation with your doctor. The information and opinions provided here are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, prevent any disease or medical condition. This podcast is for information, education, and entertainment purposes only. 